Good morning, church. It's good to see you here this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 3 this morning. Philippians 3. Uh, before we jump into it, I, I'd just like to give you uh, my heads up on, on how we're going to proceed through chapter 3. I think largely what Paul is doing through chapter 3 is kind of one contained argument, one contained uh, cycle of thought maybe is a, is a way we could we could state it. Um, but I don't want to necessarily try to cover all of chapter 3 because there's a lot of really important things within it. Uh, but I think the best way that we can see the whole picture, the, the whole argument that Paul is presenting to us here, is by, is by reading the whole chapter and then taking it piece by piece and kind of understanding that this is the trajectory that Paul is, is, is going through. So I'm going to read the whole chapter to start us off. We're going to focus on the first three verses, and, and I'll kind of make mention of what, what follows in verses 4 to uh, 11, maybe 14-ish. Um, it might not be necessary for me to tell you that ahead of time, but I just give you a clue as to where we're going. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we thank you for the work of your Son, Jesus. We thank you that he is, he is all to us. It's sufficient for us. And that He is all we need. We thank You that You are kind and loving and compassionate when we don't deserve it. We thank You that You have sent Your Son to reconcile us to You. Lord, as we turn to Your Word this morning, we pray that Your Spirit would teach us through its, through its words. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So like I said, Philippians 3 this morning. <clears throat> Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you the same things is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ as my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that, that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, become, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me 
his own. Brothers, I do not I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And in and in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained, attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who are walking according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly and their glory, and they glory in their, in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. himself. I think we can say amen. Again, Spirit, we ask your, your guidance and your teaching as we examine this passage this morning. It's in and through Jesus' precious name. So like I said, we're going to be thinking kind of about the whole, the whole chapter, but we're going to focus in on, on the progression of Paul's, uh, Paul's argument. And again, I use the word argument, not that Paul is, is fighting somebody, but he's, he's presenting a, a case to try to convince. And so he's going to kind of work through this. The first thing that Paul, the first thing that Paul says here in chapter three is finally, finally. But you might know there's four chapters in the book of Philippians, and chapter three, verse one, is the almost dead center, uh, and Paul's already saying finally, like he's coming to a conclusion. It, it might seem that way. I don't think that that's what Paul means when he uses the particular word. Yes, it does mean finally, but I think. I think rather what Paul is doing is, is kind, of, kind of saying in light of, in light of what we have been thinking about and seeing, I want us to think more particularly about this thing. It, it, one of the things that Paul uses this particular word to do is to transition from maybe a theological perspective or a theological focus to a more, maybe a more practical focus to where, uh, where he's, he's going to get a little bit more into the into the actual how does this play out in our life kind of a thing. And Philippians is a little bit different than some of Paul's other letters where it doesn't seem like Paul's being quite so deliberate theology then how that applies. Romans chapters 1 through 11, Paul is talking theologically, and then 12 through 16, he's talking very practically. This is how it looks and plays out. Philippians, he's doing the same thing, but just not quite so blatantly. And I think that's what he means when he uses the word finally. Then he says, my brothers. Now, I don't necessarily think that this needs to be stated all the time, every time we come to the word brothers in, in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament. But every once in a while, I like to say this just because I want people to know that the Bible isn't actually sexist. When, when Paul says brothers here, he's not just talking to the men in the group. When it, we have we have words in English that are not gendered. And if you know anything about foreign languages, you might you might know what I'm talking about here. But really, the only words in English that are gendered are pronouns. But in, in Hebrew, which is the language of the Old Testament, and in Greek, the language of the New Testament, every single word has has a gender attached to it. So if I'm if I'm if I'm writing a sentence or I'm, I'm, I'm saying a sentence and it's the object of the sentence is a, is a man, all of the words in the sentence are going to be masculine. If, if I'm speaking about a woman, or the object of the sentence is a woman, the subject of the sentence is a woman, it's going to be all of, all of the sentences going to 
feminine. When addressing a group of people, men and women, in this particular time, because, because words are, are gendered, you address a crowd as masculine. Uh, not masculine and feminine, feminine, but what Paul is, is really saying here on a, on a more practical level, he's not addressing men, he's addressing the crowd, and by doing so he has to, he has to gender it, and it's men, it's male. So he's really saying audience. I hope that makes sense. I'm not going to spend any more time on that. It, it's not, it doesn't help our, our conversation. It's just one of those things that helps us better understand uh, the Bible as we read it. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. This seems to be in a weird place. Seems to me to be in a weird place. I can see Paul saying rejoice in the Lord uh, at the beginning of chapter 2, right before he, he gives us his, his hymn about Christ's sacrifice for us, how he could have accounted equality with God, but he chose not to, to come and to serve, maybe humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross, and we could all say, rejoice in the Lord, because that makes sense. Rejoice in the Lord after hearing such a great statement about Jesus. But but what immediately comes before rejoice in the Lord in chapter 3 is a, a conversation about Timothy and Epaphroditus. Just about how they're servants and how we should honor such men as, as these, such people as these who, who are going to humbly serve the Lord in whatever whatever role they need to. Maybe we say rejoice in the Lord after that, but it doesn't seem to be very passionate. And then immediately following this verse, immediately following in verse 2, Paul, Paul gives us a warning about false teachers. So this also doesn't seem like something that we would typically, before we talk about false teachers, say rejoice in the Lord. There's false teachers. It seems to be out of place. But I think, I think as we think, as, as we look at this, this might be a better practice. You know, as we look around and we observe the church, there's, there's sadly too often where leaders in the church, pastors, and Bible study leaders, they, they, there's a scandal or they, they fall away from the faith or, or, or something along. You know, and, and we hear about people, it seems like all the time, who are teaching false teachings. And, and that can be really frustrating. And it can be really, it can be really disheartening. And it can make us get down on ourselves and, and, and start to, to maybe think that God is losing. But I think it's why it's very important that Paul starts his letter as he does in chapter one, kind of showing us, right? I've been talking about how, how Paul is kind of giving us lenses. The glasses by which to, to read the, the book of Philippians. And Paul shows us his faith that God is in control, even when it doesn't seem like God is in control. It, it doesn't seem like God is in control when Paul is put into prison. It doesn't seem like God is in control that because Paul is put into prison, there's these other these other good ministers who, who have who allow selfishness and pride to creep in and, and, and they see the vacuum of authority and and, and, and that Paul leaves in his in the wake of him being in prison they're going to try to get that i'm going to try to get it's oh, it just seems like that's bad stuff but paul says god is still in control and and god is still in control when there is false teachers while it may not seem rationally and logically that 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 this makes sense it is right it is what god's plan is this is what the bible teaches us and what we Hold to, and so I think what Paul is almost showing us is maybe a better way, right? Because if I hear about a pastor who who I who I listen to on a regular basis because they're good, right? They're teaching good stuff. I hear about a failure of theirs or a struggle that they all of a sudden started going through, or or the fact, oh, maybe the church just fired them, and I can go, oh man, it's so discouraging. And I, and I don't and I don't think, but God is still in control. I think what Paul is saying here is that before we talk about the struggles and the trials that this world brings up, let's always remember to rejoice in the Lord. Because no matter what's happening, we can say this collectively together, that we are, we are joyous that God is in control and that God is sovereign. 
And I think that's why Paul says rejoice in the Lord. Because if we don't and we get fixated upon, upon the people who are, who are failing or the people who are teaching false doctrines, if we fixate upon them, we maybe get discouraged and think that God is losing. He's not. He's not. So rejoice in the Lord. And then he says something that we're going to have to we're going to have to make a couple educated guesses here in the second part of verse one. He says to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And so what what we can imply from what Paul says here is that Paul is going to write something that he has already previously written. He's going to write something to the Philippians that he's previously written either to the Philippians or to somebody else. Now. In Peter, Peter makes reference to Paul's writings. He says, hey, maybe you've read some of Paul's writings, and yes, at times they can be difficult, but we need to work through it because what he's teaching is really good. And that kind of implies that the people that Peter has written to have also read things that Paul has written. And that might mean that they have the same audience, but the apostles, they really did try to not kind of both go to the same place. This is one of the reasons why Paul doesn't go to Rome different story altogether. We also know that Paul in, in Colossians, I think it's 4.16, Paul, Paul makes reference. He says, he says, once you've read this letter, namely the, the letter to the Colossians, once you've, once you've read this letter and you've kind of thought about this letter, studied this letter, send it to the church at Laodicea and make sure that you're reading that letter. And so even Paul is starting to say, you know, I understand that my teaching isn't just for that particular local church, and we're going to start sharing these letters. So the reason why we have Paul's letters is because this started to happen. That, that it wasn't just the, the Roman church that Paul was writing to, but Paul, or the, the Roman church said, this is really good. I bet you the guys down the road, they would benefit from this letter also. And the, and the Philippians said the same thing, and the Colossians said the same thing. And so they're starting to get this, this thing passed around. Now we know that Paul writes the letter to the Philippians a little bit later in his in his life and in his ministry, somewhere around 60. I think, based on the words of verse 2, the language of verse 2, and, and his reference here to having already written it, that Paul is referring to the letter to the Galatians. I think Paul is referring to the letter to the Galatians. And I'll make my case here, and it's not all that important that we all agree on that, but I think this is what's happening. Paul writes the letter to the Galatians early on in his ministry, maybe 50. 4-ish, 53, 54-ish. So there's about six, seven years in that in between there for the Galatian, the letter to the Galatians to have spread. Philippi is not really that far away from Galatia. And, and the letter to the Galatians is a very, very important letter to the early church. Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, he is, he is riled up about this thing called the circumcision group. And what the circumcision group was, was doing is they were saying that in order for you to be a Christian, in order for a Gentile to become a Christian, a Gentile, anybody who is not Jewish by birth, anybody who is a Gentile wants to become a Christian, they first have to become Jews, and then they can kind of travel through and become Christians. And the idea that the reason why that is is because Christianity is, is the ultimate end of Judaism, right? So as Christians, we believe that Christianity starts back when, when God calls Abraham out of, out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, Jewish people would say, no, Christians, they kind of messed it up and they went off to the side. We believe that we were the right path the whole time and that the Jews went off the, the wrong path. But, but it kind of comes out of Judaism. And, and so it, it, isn't, it isn't all that unnatural to think, well, what we should do is we should have them be Jews first because you need to be Jewish before you can become a Christian because Christianity is just really a part of Judaism. Now, that, that's, that's untrue, but that's kind of the logic. And so they said, okay, how do we become Jewish? Well, for the men, you have to be circumcised, physically circumcised. Now, we live in a culture that, that it's not just the, the, the Christians or the Jews who, who are circumcised at birth. But in the ancient world, circumcision really only happened in Jewish circles, in Jewish communities. Gentile, the, the Greco-Roman world did not typically have their have their children circumcised. And so that basically means that if you are a Gentile and you want to be a Christian, you have to first be circumcised. That's a big, that's a tall order, right? 
Now, we kind of put a comparison. We compare circumcision with baptism, and, and, and that is it's both right and, and, and not entirely exact. It's not the same exact thing, but there is some comparisons between baptism and, and circumcision. Circumcision from the Old Testament versus baptism in the New Testament. We are, we are marked as God's children, not by baptism, but by the blood and the work of Jesus on the cross. So in the Old Testament, God's people were marked by the physical by physical circumcision. In the New Testament, we are marked by the blood of Jesus. This is how we know that we are His. It's Jesus' work, right? And so we we make this comparison between baptism and baptism, symbolically showing us that we're contesting that to the world. And and what we do with baptism is baptism comes comes after confession. You come, you hear about Jesus, you, you, you like what you hear, you want to you place your faith in Jesus, so you place your faith in Jesus, and out of obedience, you get baptized to symbolize your faith in Jesus to everybody who is around you. Now imagine for a minute that we, that we switch baptism to circumcision. Imagine the challenge that would arise from that. I bet you that many people would not join not place their faith in Jesus because it's a tall order. It's, it's, it is. I, don't, I hope I don't need to explain what circumcision is. But I feel from your blank faces that I maybe do, but I'm not going to. It would be a challenge. But this isn't exactly what was happening. It wasn't, we, we, we have come to know Jesus. And now out of obedience, I'm going to be baptized to, to, to express my obedience to Christ and to, and to share to the world my, my faith in him. That's what, you know, that's what baptism is, right? It's, but that's not what it was. The Jewish Christians, what they were doing is they were saying, before you can enter the building, you have to be circumcised. Now, we're going to have a difficult time after people come to know Jesus and want to, and want to live for him to get circumcised. It's a whole different story. If before they can even hear about Jesus, they have to get circumcised. It'd be, you get a new employee or a new co-worker at work, and they don't know anything about Jesus. You, hey, you should really come to my church. Oh, but before you do, you've got to go and get circumcised. Can you see why Paul might be a little bit upset about this? Because what's happening is it's not, it's not Jesus plus circumcision. It's circumcision plus Jesus. Which is not what the New Testament is teaching us. It's Jesus. Period. It's his work on the cross. Period. It's not even our righteousness. It's Jesus' righteousness that's been given to us by the, the, the grace of God. Period. And so Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, he is, he is fired up. He's like, how dare you allow this to happen? And what happens? Paul writes this letter to the Galatians. It kind of circulates a little bit. And then he eventually he goes to Jerusalem. He gathers all the, the leaders of the church together, and they, they kind of come up with a salute. They come up with the, the answer. They say, you don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to be circumcised first. It's not that circumcision has no value. It's that it's not part of our walk of salvation. And so Paul, he's really frustrated. He's really frustrated. And he says, he says, I wrote this all before. But but it's it's worth me writing it down again. I can write it down. It's it's good for me. It's no trouble for me to write it down again. It's important for me to write it down. And, and, I, and I was thinking about that this week. And I was like, how what what picture in today's world do we do we get where, where we need to repeat things? Paul's like, this this truth is worth repeating. It's worth repeating. I, I'm a parent of four. Right? Any of you know this? I have four children. And when you're a parent of young children, there's one thing, there's one thing that you do. You repeat. Children repeat. Zane is on this kick right now where he says, Jeremiah, 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 Jeremiah. And he goes on all day long. He just says Jeremiah. I don't know why. But it's built into him. He's just got to repeat it. And, and so we repeat punishments. We repeat teaching. We repeat punishments, we repeat teaching, we repeat, and we repeat, and I hope at this point, Pete and repeat are sitting on a fence, Pete fell off, who was left? Somebody, Pete, repeat, right? You're just always saying things, and, and, and sometimes it can get really frustrating when, when after the two, three, four hundredth time you've told somebody, don't do that. Why do I have to repeat myself? I don't know how many times I've said that. 
And, and maybe while our, our tactics change and, and maybe a punishment happens when, when a child doesn't listen and doesn't, doesn't do the things that we say, truth is always worth repeating. Truth is always worth repeating. When your kids aren't listening to you or when, when people aren't listening to you, if you're speaking truth, continue it. It's always worth repeating. I think that's what Paul's saying here. This is so this is so important and valuable for me. He's like, it's worth me repeating. And not only is it worth me repeating, it's safe for you, he says. It's good for you. Why? Because even though the Philippian church at this point is doing a lot of things right, and at this point there aren't false teachers creeping into the church, adding to the gospel of Christ, it doesn't take long before they creep in. It doesn't take much before false teachers can start to creep into the church. And so Paul's like, it's good for me to repeat this. Not only is it good for me to repeat this, but it's safe for you. It's good for you to hear this. Repeating truth is is worth it. And so here is is what he's repeating. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the dogs, verse 2. And I want to make sure that you feel the full weight of what Paul is saying here. He's not saying, look out for man's best friend. This, in, at this time, and in Greek, is a, is a derogatory term. We would, we would call it cursing. Right? Sometimes we, we, we like to nicen up the Bible. The Bible isn't always all that nice and fluffy and, and, and flowery. It's harsh at times. Paul is being very serious. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. And, 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 and look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And it's so interesting. This is, this is why I think that he's referring to the letter to the Galatians. Because this is the phrase he uses in, in the letter to the Galatians. The, the mutilators of the flesh. You know, in, in, in the Old Testament, this was a, a rite. It was a, it was a spiritual rite that was performed to, to mark the people of Israel as gods. But what has happened since Jesus comes and what the Jewish Christians are doing is they have, they have twisted and they have manipulated and they have changed it so that it no longer has any spiritual value. And all it really is is a mutilation of the flesh, which is exactly what is happening in all these other pagan religions. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut my wrists or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tattoo my body so that the God that I want to do things for me will do them because I'm so serious. Paul says circumcision for these Jewish Christians has become like that. It's become a manipulation of God as opposed to as opposed to a mark that God has put on him. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who manipulate the flesh. And so what should we do? Now, circumcision is not a challenge in this church anymore. It's not, it's it's been relatively settled. Paul settles it through through his writings, and, and the church has really not ever struggled with the idea that before you can become a Christian, you have to be Jewish and you have to be circumcised really before you can enter into the church. And also, that is, it's largely a closed issue. But there are so many things that the church through history has added to the gospel. Clothes to entertainment choices or lack thereof. To, to adherence to the law, to adherence to that particular church's law. We add to the gospel. We add to the story, the gospel. The good news is, is not that Jesus came and, and freed us so that we could, we could maybe do enough right things to finally earn God's. No, it's that Jesus came and did it all and then gave it all to us. That's the good news. So we look out for them. Which means we have to have our eyes open. We have to be paying attention. I I, I say this again and again and again because I want this to be true in this church. I hope we've not gotten to the point where if Ryan has said it, it must be right. I hope that you are like the Bereans. And I hope there's at least some of you who are like the Bereans in the book of Acts, who when Paul spoke these things, they searched the scriptures like, yeah, that, what, did, what did Ryan say about that? Oh, let me, let me read about it. Let me think about it. Let me, let me engage in this, in this doctrinal truth. And if there's ever a time where you're like, hmm, 
I'm not sure, I'm not sure if I like the way Ryan said that. Ask Missy. I love, love talking about doctrine and theology in the Bible. I do. I'm a Bible geek, and I freely admit it. And I don't offend easily. So if you think, oh, if I say this to Ryan, if I, if I suggest that maybe he's saying something wrong, Ryan's going to be offended, he's going to be mad at me. No, I won't, I promise you, I promise you. We'll have a dialogue, we'll talk about it, absolutely. Yeah, because I love it. And you might be annoyed at that, but it's all right. I want you to look out for the false teachers. And it's not just me, right? There are more people who, who, who stand up and, and proclaim truth in this church. It's not just about me. Ryan this morning, Max, Rob, Wes, Matt, who am I forgetting? It's, the list is too long. There are people who proclaim truth always, constantly, look out, have our eyes open. Not because, we're, not because we, we just assume that at some point Ryan's going to eventually speak wrong things. So we're not being pessimistic here. We're guarding the truth because the truth is so, it's too important to not. So Paul says, verse, verse 2, he says, look out for the dogs, the evildoers, and those mutilators of the flesh. He gives us three things. I don't think that it's accidental that Paul is going to give us now three different things. He says, we, for we are the circumcision. And what Paul is doing here is he's basically taking this thing that was claimed by somebody else wrongly, and he's saying, no, this isn't yours, this is ours. Right, we do this with stuff. We claim things. We, we, we sanctify things. Right, the church sanctified, sanctified bar music. Do you know that? In the Middle Ages, when, when classical, you know classical music used to be the music of bars? You guys know that? We don't think that anymore. But. And they said, no, the, the world doesn't get music. It's God's. Give it back. And so they took it back. We do this all the time. Paul says, you don't get circumcision because you got it wrong. Give it back. We are the circumcision. Not circumcised in the flesh. Circumcised of the heart, he says in Romans. And this is what marks us as the circumcision. He says, who, who worship God in the, who worship by the Spirit of God, excuse me, and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This is what marks us as the circumcised. Again, the circumcised of the heart, not of the flesh. Not physically circumcised, but spiritually circumcised. We worship by the Spirit of God. We worship by the Spirit of God. And, and we the first reaction to the word worship is almost always musically. And that's and, and, and we don't stop. Worship doesn't stop with just singing. But but I, I think we can all recognize the Spirit's input in worship at times. You ever, you ever wonder why there's there's times whenever you're singing Christian songs, maybe you've sang your whole life for some of us? You ever wonder why every once in a while we'll sing Amazing Grace and like, oh, it was like the greatest experience ever. It's because the Spirit of God is not just, he's, the Spirit of God is participating in our worship. You know, a song that we've maybe, even if you don't, didn't grow up in church, you've heard a thousand times in your life. Not to mention at other times. Not to mention when we go through our lives and worship God with our actions. Worship become living sacrifices to the Lord with the things that we're doing. The transformation that's happening in our lives. The, the movement of the Holy Spirit in our life. We live and work and, 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 and walk through life. Sprint through lives at time because the Spirit of God is guiding us. It's the worship of God and the Spirit of God. And we glory in Christ Jesus. I read that this week, this, this week and, and I was thinking about it like, ah, I just, mm. glory in Christ Jesus. It seems like an odd phrase, and, and, I, and I was kind of, and so I was reading the commentary. This is, this is commentary in Philippians by Kent, Kent Hughes. If you want more information, you can ask me about it later. And he, he puts, he, he subtitles this section in trying to explain to us what to glory in Christ Jesus means. He says, and I couldn't come up with anything better, so I'm just going to read it. So he's called it out, outward boasting. This is our outward boasting. He said, he said, secondly, those who are the real circumcision glory in Christ Jesus. This is because it is the work of the Holy Spirit to exalt Jesus. And that's in reference to John 16, 14. It says, when we worship by the Spirit, what we just were talking about, we naturally glory in Christ Jesus. 
more exactly, or let me say it in a different way, he says, we boast in Christ Jesus. We, we boast in him. We boast because it is not our hold on Christ that saves us. It's Christ. We, we boast because it's not our joy in Christ that saves us. It is Christ. And we boast because it's not even our faith in Christ that saves us. It is Christ. Christ becomes, and this is why I wanted to quote this, Christ becomes divine obsession. It's the divine obsession of the real circumcision. Christ becomes the singular concern, the focus of his people. The evidence of the fruitfulness of the Spirit is a one-track mind, a one-themed tongue that speaks perpetually about Christ. And Christ becomes the source of all satisfaction. That's what he means when we glory in Christ. That we are daily, continually being refocused to focusing not on the things of us, not on the selfishness of our own lives and on the things in our lives, but we become, we become continuously more and more obsessed with Jesus and what he has done and what he is doing. One track mind. And lastly, he says, and put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. And here's what Paul says. And this is why I was saying it's important for us to have the whole of chapter 3 to understand. He goes on, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. And then he challenges you. You think you have confidence in the flesh? I have more. Here's what Paul is saying. If you think you've done enough by the law and by the standards of the Old Testament, I've done more. You can't outdo Paul is what he's saying. Which seems pretty bold. Seems pretty Seems pretty un-Paul-like. He says, look, I'm, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm a, I'm a Jew. I'm, a, I'm a, a, a Benjaminite. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, as to, as to zeal of persecutor, I've done it all. And then he says, he says, as to the law, as to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. That's a bold statement. He's like, can any of you top that? Let me answer him for you. No. No, we can't. I mean, at the least of which, because we're not Jewish. We don't have anything to have confidence. He says, he says, all of that, all of that is rubbish. It's garbage. It's trash. It means absolutely nothing. Why? Because Jesus did it all. He did it all. He didn't do some of it. He didn't do most of it. He did it. He did all of it. And then he gives it to us. And so, and so the mark of, of, of the circumcision, the real circumcision, is that we, that we worship God in the Spirit, that we glory in Christ Jesus and what he has done, and we trust not in ourselves because we have failed ourselves again and again and again and again. Repeat. He has done it all. Amen. Put no confidence. Put no confidence in the flesh. We put it all on our divine obsession. Let's pray. Great and loving Heavenly Father. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus. for his work, for his love, for his compassion for us. We thank you that he has saved and reconciled us, not on our own account, but on yours. Not through our own merits, but on, on Christ's. And we thank you that his merits are sufficient. And so, Lord, as we think about the work of your spirit in changing us daily to be more like Jesus. We put our confidence not in our efforts, not in how much we can change ourselves, but solely and completely upon your love, mercy, grace, 
that has been lavished upon us. We count all of our efforts as nothing, as rubbish. We count all that we have as from you. In Jesus' precious and glorious name. couple quick announcements here. Um, next Sunday, 